From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Emily Arnson. This is your news for Friday, May 12th. A dried-up side channel of the Colorado River, just upstream of Sorrel River Ranch, is finally seeing some water after years of restoration. Invasive tamarisk, sediment buildup, and drought have blocked water from reaching the channel in the past, but after six years of clearing the area, this year's spring runoff is finally finding its way back to the channel. These side channel habitats are vitally important for the way that the river flows and the animals that live in it. Tony Mancuso is the Sovereign Lands Coordinator for the Utah Department of Natural Resources. The DNR is one of many collaborators on this project, including Rim-to-Rim Restoration, the Bureau of Land Management, and the Utah Conservation Corps. This sediment that gets locked up by the native plants and it doesn't wash downstream, that's what's needed to create beaches downstream for good river camping. Additionally, those side channels are where the endangered fish like the razorback sucker and the humpback chub need Mm. to spawn. So that's where they lay their eggs and hatch their eggs and the baby fish grow up um, where it's shallow and warm and safe from predators in the deeper parts of the river. The channel is about 15 feet wide and two-thirds of a mile long. Mancuso says the project is slow going in part because water levels have been so low in recent years, but this year he's hoping that high water will work to their advantage. Our strongest ally here is the river itself. It can really only help us when there's enough water in it that it can reach the work that we've done already. So it might be another three, five, I couldn't tell you, but it might be a few more years before we get another good water year like this. And in the meantime, we just maintain that channel clear of vegetation so that we don't lose any of the progress that we've made. Last week, the team was finally able to connect the river to the newly cleared side channel. And within an hour, Mancuso says there was already water flowing through it and a fish. Working under a a doctrine of anti-degradation is to give things little gentle nudges and to try and pay attention to how the natural systems work and then take the smallest possible intervention to help coax things into the way that they're already going. Removing tamarisk is the brunt of the work, but Mancuso says in recent years, a lot of the tamarisk has been dying off thanks to the tamarisk beetle, which was introduced in the area to kill the invasive plants. We're worried about Russian olive replacing it. So we keep a a close eye out for Russian olives, and we also are looking for herbaceous noxious weeds that the Grand County Weed Department specializes in. These are things like Canada thistle and Russian knapweed. Eventually, Mancuso hopes the river will naturally start to recarve the side channel on its own. But in the meantime... Every time the river dips a little bit like it just did, we'll run out there and, and scratch a little bit more in the sand. I'm pretty sure we're going to need at least one or two more good water years like this one in order to be able to get it done. More information about the project can be found in today's show notes. Heavy snow dumped on Wyoming this winter, but an iconic stretch of the Snake River that flows through Grand Teton National Park is still at risk of drying up. KHOL's Hannah Mersbach reports on a federal decision to cut water flow. Oxbow Bend, a popular overlook on the Upper Snake, could soon look very different. That's because federal managers decided to cut flows from Jackson Lake Dam by more than 80%. The reservoirs downstream are already full, and allowing the river to flow at high volume could mean wasting water, though cutting those flows could have drastic consequences for ecosystems in Grand Teton. The state of Wyoming is making up for it 
by cutting into its emergency water bank. But Wyoming Game and Fish's Alan Osterland says that could run out in just a few weeks. So, of course, it's real concerning to us because if we're going to utilize our whole state account and then that flow goes down to zero and impacts that fisheries, that's the most important thing to us is protecting that fisheries. And right now we don't have the capacity. Stakeholders are meeting to consider options like renting more water to fill that gap. Hannah Mersbach of KHOL. Spring migration is in full swing, and right now the Great Salt Lake is a paradise for birds and bird watchers alike. Anna Johnson of Utah Public Radio reports on the diversity of species that use the lake to rest and refuel. The wetlands of Great Salt Lake host 12 million birds, over 300 different species every year as they migrate along the Pacific Flyway. It's kind of like a gas station on a road trip for birds. Ashley Gajowski is a biologist with the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources at the Farmington Bay Wildlife Management Area. It's kind of an oasis in the desert along the Pacific Flyway. There's about 350,000 acres of wetlands along the lake and about 60% of those are managed for birds. She says visiting parts of Great Salt Lake, like the Farmington Bay Wildlife Management Area, is a great way to understand how important Great Salt Lake is to Utah ecosystems. I think it's important for people to come out Maybe they can learn about the birds to connect them to the wetlands of Great Salt Lake. Haley Pace also works for the Utah DWR. She says more and more birds will be arriving at Great Salt Lake in the coming weeks. About this time of year is when you're going to start seeing the bulk of that. We have our great blue herons that are here now. We have lots of species of ducks and geese, um, the swans, and then just a lot of other species of songbirds and whatnot. Kajowski says Great Salt Lake's wetlands are a critical stop for birds to refuel on their migration. They come here and they fuel up. Some of them will stay for a month, some of them maybe a couple months, and then they make their way on the rest of their migration. So Great Salt Lake is an essential place for them to come and eat invertebrates and rest. She says keeping water in Great Salt Lake is essential for these wetland habitats. Birds are a very big indicator species, meaning that if a bird population isn't doing well, that's an indication of the, maybe the habitat condition. Pace says she's optimistic about the future of the lake. I think that the future of the Great Salt Lake is kind of promising at this point for the amount of attention it's getting, and we can you know, only hope for the best. But uh, I do think we should take it seriously and, and always do our part conserve water. Kajowski agrees. I'm actually really hopeful about the lake. We've had a really great winter and I am a wildlife biologist, but I will say that as a regular citizen, seeing all of the positive changes happening within our legislator and the bills being passed for water make me super hopeful that we're going to figure it out. Our snowpack has started to melt, adding much needed water to Great Salt Lake. But the lake needs several more years of heavy rain and snowfall to get back to a healthy, sustainable level. Ensuring its long-term health will require more forward momentum from everyone, the legislature, residents, and stakeholders. I'm Anna Johnson. The Moab City Council was in session this week, so... What happened at the what meeting? What happened at the meeting? What uh, exactly happened at the meeting? Moab Sun News editor Maggie McGuire has the answer. At this week's Moab City Council meeting, elected officials reviewed the 2023-2024 budget and approved a special event permit for the Grand County 4th of July Parade. There was also a discussion of code enforcement in the city, as well as consideration of a pair of subdivisions. In other news in the Moab Sun News this week, we talked to National Park Service officials about changes to this year's timed entry program at Arches, heard about events bringing heritage livestock to the Moab City Museum this week, 
and considered just what we would teach if we became mentors in the Grand County 4-H program, which is currently looking for volunteers. And that's what happened at the meeting, plus a little extra. That's because the Moab Sun News is off the hook for the newsreel today, but they'll be back next week. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. As record-setting snowpack begins to melt and flow down the Colorado River, Moab's mosquito experts are preparing for a big year. Sophia Fisher of the Times Independent speaks with Molly Marcello about their coverage. Yeah, I spoke with Steve Schaefer, who was recently hired as the manager of the Moab Mosquito Abatement District, and he said it's going to be a big mosquito year, if, if folks couldn't already tell with all the snow melt coming down from the mountains. Okay, so big mosquito year. How is the district preparing for it? Yeah, they are just about fully staffed, actually, with five folks, and they're trying to bring on a sixth. And they're already getting out and larviciding a lot, and they're kind of gearing up for this, like, all-hands-on-deck season. And they're going to work on some public relations campaigns as well over the summer. Um, There are different waves of mosquitoes, and the first wave is going to be a big one. That'll probably be the wetlands mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. But after those guys go away, starting around 4th of July, a new breed of mosquitoes will probably move in, living in people's yards, like the 80s Egypti. Mm -hmm. So the Mosquito Abatement District is going to do a lot of uh, public relations work over the summer, too, to make sure people are cleaning out their yards and emptying standing water and all that. All right. So you went to the wetlands with um, District Manager Steve Schaefer. And what did you talk about with him out there? Uh, We talked about, you know, just the expectations for how much water is going to come down the river. And he said, you know, he's pretty sure the wetlands are going to at least partly flood. Uh, We chatted as well, you know, about the different kinds of mosquitoes. There's some really interesting biology um, behind them. I actually didn't know that mosquitoes' main source of nutrition is nectar, uh, not not blood, which is kind of wow. cool. Interesting. Um, and then, you know, the obviously the importance of citizen and resident engagement um, as the season continues because, you know, those mosquitoes like Aedes aegypti are the ones who are likely more likely to spread West Nile virus. Mm-hmm. So it's not just, um, you know, a, a pest concern, but it's a human health concern um, mm-hmm. for folks to make sure their yards are really clean. Okay. Um, anything else on the minds of the Mosquito Abatement District this year? Schaefer did say that fogging is on the table this year if we start getting a bunch of West Nile positives. Mm-hmm. He said he's going to try to create an email list for folks just to let everybody, you know, the community know when that could happen. Mm-hmm. And he said he'll alert local media as well. Uh, but just so you know, that is potentially on the table this year. Okay. So um, as you explained, you know, the district is doing a lot of work right now in the wetlands. They're looking ahead, though, to community engagement. Is there anything that we can do right now? Yeah, take an initial look at your yard. I mean, throw away things that you're not using. Uh, Identify the spots maybe where water is filling up, even Mm -hmm. on just like the lids of pots or something like that. I mean, for some of these mosquitoes, they only need a thimble full of water Mm -hmm. to lay eggs that'll hatch. So I would start surveying your yard. It's also important to clean out excess vegetation. Like he was saying, kind of long grass, especially when it's in shade, is super attractive for mosquitoes because they'll hang out there during the day and then come out and bite you at night. So, you know, stay on top of your your mowing or your pruning or whatever it is and just identify, yeah, water spots in your yard. Okay. All right. Well, more information about mosquitoes and the potential ahead is in this week's edition of the Times Independent. Where do you want to take us next, Sophia? A political story on uh, city council elections this year. Okay. So the city council um, has decided to return to a traditional election method, as it says in the TI. Um, Tell us about it. Absolutely. So as folks, uh, I'm sure remember, the city used ranked choice voting in 2021 to fill uh, two council seats and a mayoral seat. 
And they've announced that they are not going to return to that for the 2023 election, which is for three city council seats. Rather, they're going to use a traditional election method. So why did they decide against the ranked choice voting? They basically said that, you know, they did a poll after the 2021 election that showed people were generally unhappy with the method. Mm. So they're going right back. Okay, they're going right back. That means that in a traditional election, we can expect what? Yeah, (laughs) you vote for your, you know, candidate of choice as before, rather than giving them each a rank. It does mean there could be a primary election which would likely be in september if it happened Uh, and the general will be in november as normal okay there will be three seats up for election this year on the city council um, but we don't know yet who's running indeed um the the incumbents uh, none of them has said for sure whether or not they're going to run again and those are um tawny newtson boy kaylin jones and ronnie derossery What about filing deadlines, Sophia? Yes, uh, filing deadlines are in June. Um, So thankfully, there's kind of a shorter election cycle on this than for, you know, county elections or larger elections. Hopefuls must declare their candidacy between June 1st and June 7th, which is actually coming right up. And write-in candidates must file for office uh, by 5 p.m. September 4th. Great. And there is more in the Times Independent. Sophia, where do you want to take us next? Certainly. Um, a, a feel-good story about a community upswell of support that got an elderly woman uh, back into a home after hers was condemned following last August's big flood. Wow. Okay. So this is um, a story that you wrote and you spent time with her, Doreen O'Connell. You know, she lived where exactly? She lives on Mill Creek Drive, uh, right around the, the curve uh, before you, you know, if you're going into town before you come over the bridge, there are a few mobile homes or modular homes there and she lives in one of those so a very visible uh, face in the community and you know did she describe her experience of the flood you know what happened exactly um when flood waters destroyed her home it sounds terrifying i mean she you know she lives right on the banks of mill creek over there but she said that the water was getting like above her knees maybe up to her waist before she even called 911 and a sheriff's deputy actually carried her out of the house and her pet parrot ziggy that was very important Uh, She said, you know, she's lived in that location for 45 years and she's never seen a flood like that there. And I should say also her birthday was the day after the flood, too, which did not help. Um, But yeah, Doreen, I mean, folks started in the community started rallying to help her out because her home was condemned. The foundation had been undermined. Um, you know, and she, she is elderly and doesn't really have family in the area. So some of her former neighbors, Heidi and Robert Lowry, gave her a space to stay after she had to leave the hotel that she was first put in. And she ended up living there for like seven or eight months. It was absolutely amazing um, show of support and generosity from those two community members. And then Bill Hulse, who actually works for Grand County, but he was acting kind of in his personal capacity here, started just reaching out to folks to see if anyone would be able to help donate time or effort to help out Doreen. And there was this just groundswell of support. Apparently everybody, everybody knows her because she's been here for so long. Mm. And there were mm-hmm. folks donating food and clothing and painting and the skirting on the house. And they actually got a modular home itself uh, from a Spanish Valley property owner. So just Wow. Everything kind of fell into place over the course of the winter. Now, what about, you know, Doreen's thoughts about this experience? She said she's overwhelmed. She kept saying thank you isn't enough. And she's just trying to find ways to pay people back. It's, mm-hmm. it's really sweet, actually. She, she's been doing upholstery, like uh, sewing seats for cars and motorcycles and side-by-sides and boat covers, like really intense uh, sewing. Wow. She's been doing that for years. And she said she wants to do that for everybody who helped her out. Okay. And she encourages anyone who, you know, did help to, to reach out to her to see if she can do any sewing for them. She's just, she's trying to find ways to give back now herself, which is really heartwarming. What a lovely story. Anything else from your time with Doreen? Um, One thing that's really cool, she has a lot of taxidermied animals, including Betsy, her uh, former pet bear, who she... What? Yeah. (laughs) 
Doreen had a pet bear named Betsy when she lived uh, on a ranch in Floy Wash, and she described like feeding the bear dog food and cat food, and eventually got the bear taxidermied, and the bear is now safely in her new home. Oh my gosh, what a character! Amazing. She sounds like um, a real Moab local. I feel like she could totally just tell you stories for like hours. Well, thank you so much, Sophia. And there's another story that I'm hoping you can highlight related to the school district and some um, school dress code changes. Yes, uh, Grand County School District adopted a new dress code as of May 1st that now allows exposed midriffs, dyed hair, and hats. Uh, it also uh, dispenses with measurement-based restrictions, such as you know requiring your shorts to be fingertip length or your tank tops straps to be an inch wide and it also dispenses with language that was talking about you know forbidding clothing that was provocative or a distraction mm. you know after many students said they felt targeted or sexualized by that language mm-hmm. so superintendent taryn k you spoke with her um what did she have to say about these changes yeah superintendent k said that the former dress code had proven to be a barrier to learning for many students who reported again feeling targeted reported you know not necessarily feeling comfortable around teachers who had dress coded them and thereby you know missing classes and mm-hmm. missing learning time Mm -hmm. um so that was one of the big impetuses behind this new dress code which um i should say the uh, middle school principal joseph olson and the high school vice principal alana simmons cameron kind of spearheaded over the last year with a also with a committee of staff and parents and all that and you know you said that the the old dress code created a barrier to learning and some students felt like it even like sexualized them Absolutely. And I think this is kind of a, the trend of new dress codes is something we're seeing, I think, around the country. I mean, they said that, you know, calls to change the dress code had come up every year forever. Um, Some students could be dress coded based on their body, you know, if they're wearing the same outfit as someone else, but they have different proportions or different, a different body shape, they might be dress coded, another student might not be. Right. It also created a financial barrier for some parents and families who were forced to buy new garments every time their kid went through a growth spurt Mm -hmm. to maintain, you know, um, to be in compliance with the dress code. So a lot of new reasons, you know, I think plenty of folks on the school board said, you know, like the need to regulate student dress isn't going to go away. And they all acknowledge like there's always going to be some students pushing the boundaries no matter Mm -hmm. what you do. So I think enforcement um, of this dress code is still still remains to be seen over the next year. But I do think the the new language uh, people felt is a, is a big step forward. If you don't mind um, talking a little bit about the new language, you know, what does it say now? Absolutely. Um, from what I remember, it says that in Grand County, we wear clothing that covers nudity. Um, our clothing has a front, a back, and sides. Those are kind of some examples at the beginning. At Grand County, we wear shoes. Sure. Being very um, just general. Exactly. It's meant yeah. to be a little more inclusive and not create these like so-called kind of hard lines that actually prove themselves very subjective and amorphous right. and just kind of broadens the language a little bit. And before you go, Sophia, I know you want to um, shout out a story in your B section. What's going on there? Yeah, uh, some really exciting reporting in our sports and outdoors section this week. Uh, The one I want to point out is called The Greatest Correction Ever Printed. Uh, (laughs) And we ran the story uh, after our amazing sports writer and photographer, Amy Walling, made an honest mistake. She had previously reported that um, a Grand County High soccer record was scoring 35 goals in a career, but it was actually 35 goals in a season. Wow. Uh, so Amy went out and found the former student who set this record, and it's Sebastian Roa. Uh, and he actually still lives in Grand County uh, and, and manages Moab Giants. Okay, so how did Amy figure out that this was an error? And then she decided to actually like interview Roa to uh, you know catch up with him. Yeah, I think she said just some community members pointed out that you know that 35 record wasn't quite what she had said. Mm. Uh, and we're able to put her in touch uh, with Sebastian. And yeah, he still lives in Grand County with his wife, Monse, and their 
children, Ethan and Sophia. Okay. Did he have anything to say about that record? Yeah. He said he's been kind of waiting for someone to break it, honestly. Um, (laughs) And he... After Grand County High, he went to college and played soccer for a bit, but got an injury. But I think he still plays in Grand County's adult league. So he's definitely still out on the soccer pitch. Okay, so he's still out there, still playing soccer. 35 goals in soccer. That is quite a feat. That's enormous. (laughs) Yeah, when I heard that, my my jaw dropped. Sophia Fisher, reporter at the Times Independent. Subscription information and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. And that's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News Podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting community-powered radio.